July 23rd in our newsroom studio, where we are recording the 97th episode of the podcast, The Gathering Storm Edition. My name is Keith Gerine, and I am stepping in as guest host this week while Brent Whitmire is on vacation. It's been a quiet week on the provincial politics scene, so for this episode, we will explore how things are shaping up for a very intriguing federal election in Alberta. We'll also spend a little time on former Premier Alison Redford here in the studio to provide their brilliant insight. Ooh, that's, that, that's wow, what an far high. Let's bring him back. <laughs> we have senior reporter Sheila Pratt. Hello. Columnist Paula Simons. Good morning, Keith. And making his debut appearance on the press gallery, we have blogger and web editor Stuart Thompson. Hi. So thanks to all of you for joining me. As I mentioned, uh, this is the 97th edition of the podcast, which I found kind of fitting because, uh, of course, 97 is a significant number around these parts of Edmonton, thanks to the arrival of our, our newest hockey superstar, Connor McDavid. He brought hockey. I really did. Podcast. Yeah, I really did. Awesome. I got to get the ratings up somehow. Yeah, absolutely. You know. yeah, hey, yeah. hey. <laughs> I mean, people aren't tuning in just for me. More people want to hear about Connor McDavid. Okay. I'm not going to take it personally. It's a tough pill to swallow. Apollo, I know, but uh, <laughs> and of course, hockey and politics don't really have a lot in common, except for one thing, which is kind of a, a timing coincidence that the first time Connor McDavid steps on the ice this fall for the Oilers, at that point we may be in the midst, probably will be in the midst of a very, very compelling federal election. Stuart, I actually want to start with you. What are some of the big questions in your mind for Alberta as we as we head to that official start of the campaign? Uh, well, I think the really big question in my mind, in a parliamentary democracy, you have two really distinct types of election. One is the really incremental election, which is what Stephen Harper has been battling for about 11 years, where, you know, he beat the liberals down to a minority. He won his own minority. He won a slightly bigger minority. And then he won a majority. And then we have the type we saw in Alberta, which was a massive sweeping change of government. So those... I think both are possible in this next election. Probably the more likely scenario is an incremental type election. So we'll see. I think there's a lot of races you could see having some kind of relevance, which is, you know, the Liberals did pretty well in Fort McMurray in the last by-election. Right. Yeah. So I wonder if that is maybe a sign of them doing a little better in Alberta. But then I think I was walking here and thinking about the most likely scenario, which I think is there could be a national surge for the NDP and then uh, the Liberals, who I think are establishing a pretty good game in Alberta, you could see that kind of being balanced out by a national surge, which jumps up those numbers a little bit in Alberta. So, you know, they have a strong candidate, I think, not a star candidate, but strong uh, in Amarjeet Sohi in Millwoods. You could really see him doing okay in Edmonton, but then a national surge for the NDP kind of just splitting that left-wing vote and maybe allowing the Conservatives to, to do pretty well in Alberta still. Right, they may still win, just not with the same kind of numbers that they've had in yeah. the past, right? Well, back in May, there were a lot of suggestions that the victory for the provincial NDP would lead to a major breakthrough for the federal NDP in Alberta, and that the demise of the provincial Conservatives signaled a coming end to the Harper Conservatives' stranglehold on, on the province. Paula, you were pretty definitive then, pretty definitive in your disagreement with those ideas. You felt the provincial result would not have much relevance to the federal arena. Do you still believe that to be the case? Well, as a good politician knows, you never admit you were wrong. What you can say are <laughs> mis mistakes were made. <laughs> mistakes were made, uh, perhaps. And, you know, I, I was on a lot of national 
programs during the Rachel Notley surge. You know, I talked to The Current, I talked to As It Happens, I talked to Power and Politics, and everybody in Toronto and Ottawa wanted to know what would Rachel Notley's success mean for Thomas Mulcair. And I said to everybody, it means nothing for Thomas Mulcair. She's distancing herself carefully from Thomas Mulcair. This is about Jim Prentice. This is about Rachel Notley. This is about local conditions and local personalities and, you know, frustration with a 44-year PC brand and brand fatigue. And that seemed like a pretty logical argument at the sure, time yeah. because I just, especially given the fact that, you know, Rachel Notley was treating Thomas Mulcair like he had cooties and trying to stay as far away from him as possible. But, you know, now I, I still don't think it means, I don't think the Alberta election results mean anything for Thomas Mulcair in Ontario or in Nova Scotia. But I think here in Alberta, there was a kind of an awakening of people saying, you know what? I can actually cast a vote that makes a difference. So I don't know that it necessarily means that everybody federally is going to vote NDP. I mean, I, 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 mean, I know I, I, I don't think it, believe, it means that. But I think it did signal to Albertans that they don't just have to vote the way they've always voted. And they don't just have to vote conservative. So I, I think it could be good news for some NDP candidates and some liberal candidates. But I think really what's going to be interesting is to see if people go out to the polls in greater numbers because they feel empowered in a way that they just weren't before. Right, yeah, yeah I, I think it is an interesting, just to add my two cents on this topic, it, it is an interesting psycholo- psychological shift that you don't have to do the group think, the sky doesn't fall if actually you vote differently. You know, on the other hand, let's, let's all remember that it's a few seats probably at play here. It's not like any kind of big sweep. The question is how much of the Tory grip is going to be loosened here? Three or four seats in in Edmonton, possibly in play, maybe a couple in Calgary. I think there'll be a lot of other Tory ridings that are ridings that will just hang on to their Tory uh, their Tory seats. But so. you know, if, if it is a close election, five seats in play in Alberta could make the difference. That's true between a majority, yeah. a minority, a victory, a loss. Uh, you know, and I, I think it is going to be interesting to see how Rachel Notley plays this. I mean, if the NDP looks like it's moving ahead, is she going to come out more supportive and publicly for Mulcair because he, she is keeping a distance? I mean. When Mulcair was in for the FCM in the spring, their meeting was at five o'clock on Saturday afternoon. There were two media there, right? <laughs> and yeah. None of that story got very much play. I was one of them, and and it was it was uh, pleasant, but it was not a warm and you know fuzzy meeting. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch how she plays it. Yeah. But you know, Stuart makes a very very interesting point. The Liberals over the last eighteen months have really established a beachhead here. The problem is. That federally, like nationally, Mulcair is on a surge and and Trudeau is not. And Mulcair is a much harder sell in Alberta. I mean, ironically, Pierre Trudeau's son plays better in Alberta (laughs) than Mulcair does because I think Justin Trudeau has actually made a significant strategic effort to be in Alberta, to talk about Alberta issues, to talk about things that matter to Albertans. And Mulcair, every time he comes to Alberta, the the messaging we get from him is that he's not interested in Alberta's issues and not interested very much in what makes Alberta tick. And I, I don't think he's doing his ground team here any particular favors. I mean, and it, they're they're not as well organized on the no, ground. I mean, they're, they're they're not even going to have candidates nominated till the end of August, which doesn't leave a lot of time for campaigning. So, right. whereas the Liberals have been nominated for a while, not in every riding, but in some. Yeah. Way. Well, I, I want to follow that thread a little further because uh, you know, let's say that scenario does happen where Thomas Mulcair does become prime minister, but they don't have a lot of 
seats here in Alberta, the NDP, and maybe a few, maybe the Liberals get a few, but the, the Tories continue to, to have the, the stranglehold on the province. I mean, what would that kind of scenario look like for Alberta? Oh, I was thinking, just in the conversation you were just having, I think the NDP, and this is a very Ontario thing to think, and I can say that because I lived there for a while, that there is some disconnect between being strong on the environment and being okay electorally in Alberta. And I think maybe the Liberals a year ago realized that's maybe not the case, because I think in Edmonton, especially like urban centers like Edmonton and maybe even Calgary, there are people who think we do need to be battling climate change and maybe we can support the oil sands and still also do that. And I think maybe in the last couple of months, the NDP federally has been looking at the NDP provincially and saying, these guys are able to do this. They're able to talk about the oil sands and then also talk about climate change. And it doesn't sound ridiculous or it doesn't sound like they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. So I wonder if that is something they're realizing. And I wonder if maybe that's something they realize down the road they can work together on. It, yeah. That is an interesting yeah. point because, the you know, Rachel Notley's first uh, foray on the national scene was to forge an alliance with Quebec because she wants to get in on this debate about jobs and the economy and how she can push the pipeline with the proper environmental restrictions on it. So it is interesting. She's making an alliance. And now, of course, that's a liberal government, not an NDP government, but still, it's interesting. I think think this does come back, again, to sort of Rachel Notley's personality. She went, you know, we talked about this on the podcast before. She went down to Stampede. She charmed oil executives. She just kind of stood there all five-foot blonde of her, charming, charming, charming (laughs) them. And they all came out kind of hypnotized. Uh, You know, I don't think Thomas Mulcair can do that. But But I think to come back to your question, It's not a new experience for Alberta to know what it's like to have just one or two MPs in government. This is what happened under the Liberals when we had Anne McClellan, the Deputy Prime Minister from Edmonton. It turned out to be great for Edmonton because she had incredible leverage. I mean, I don't think it means that you're shut out. I think, ironically, we've been shut out of the Harper government. I mean, what leverage does Edmonton have at Stephen Harper's cabinet table? Precious little. When the government takes all of your votes for granted, you know, they're not going to come and give you a billion dollars for LRT the way Ottawa, you know, got this week. There is a really funny situation happening in Ontario right now where there's a liberal government and I think the conservatives federally realize they have to really keep their seats in Ontario and make some inroads. Um, so they're making spending announcements in Toronto, but not inviting the provincial government. Yeah. And everyone's really mad about that in the provincial government. But, I mean, if you live in Ontario, if you live in Toronto, you're still getting the stuff. So I, I think maybe that's something that you can see when there's that disconnect. I think it's more the politicians that end up fighting than the people. Right. Well, Paul, I want to pick up on on a point that you just made about the Tories, about potentially taking votes for granted here in Alberta. And I I think there is some sense that maybe they can't do that this time. Yes. Well, I mean, that that ought to be the message that they got in May. You know, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. (laughs) Exactly. And so for the first time in many elections, they may have to spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money here in Alberta where they they normally wouldn't have to. They could normally devote all that to Quebec or Ontario. So, so you might think. I mean, you, you don't see much of it. It's interesting. Our, our post-media colleague, Michael Van Tant, had a, a really interesting column uh, this week about, you know, where is Stephen Harper? You know, he sort of made one or two sleepy appearances at the Calgary Stampede. And other than that, you know, where is the prime minister who is about to fight for his job? He's not out stumping. He's worried about overexposure, perhaps. Maybe, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, uh, the, even the Calgary Herald, which has been a pretty reliable ally for the Harper government, was starting to get shirty at the stampede, noting that Stephen Harper hasn't talked to anybody 
I mean, Stephen Harper, MP for Calgary, hasn't talked to the Calgary Herald in, I think, seven or eight years. Wow. I don't think he's ever talked to our editorial board in the whole time he's been prime minister. So, you know, I mean, I, I think the the feeling has always been that they didn't need to campaign here at all. Right. Uh, that once Laurie Hahn knocked off Anne McClellan, you know, a couple election cycles back, that after that, really, they didn't they didn't care much. They were even content to let Linda Duncan keep Edmonton Strathcona without much of a fight. But if they think that is going to work this time, I think they may that may be a, a, a serious miscalculation. But if you are the Tories and you are a little concerned, I mean, what are what's the strategy for them? What messages that do they need to get out to the Alberta public to say, hey, we're still your party here. Come vote for oh, us. I think they just take the, the policy divide that seems to be emerging uh, you know, the childcare thing, we're putting checks in your pockets. I mean, all that, that strategy was well articulated by Pierre Polyev this, this, uh, so week. well articulated. So well articulated. <laughs> and I think, I think, you know, we keep your taxes low. That was Lori Hahn's mantra for years. That will continue to be their mantra and fear the NDP raising taxes. And so I, I think there'll be plenty of policy divides that they'll try to appeal on. And then just the competence of the, the, the prime minister on the economy, which will be their weak spot, we think, because we're actually not sure where the economy is going. The signals aren't that great. And that could be a problem for the Tories. Yeah, the economy is sort of the wild card, I, I think, right now, because oil prices are heading heading yes. south. The loonies heading yeah. south. People are feeling a little more nervous. And that has been the Tories' kind of strength, or at least the one they believe is their strength, right? We are the best stewards of the economy. That's always the, always the message. But... Is that going to be a big factor in the election in Alberta? Is that, is, are the Tories the best position to, to take advantage of that? Well, it's an interesting question because, I mean, clearly this, I mean, this economic downturn is happening on their watch. To what extent any federal government can be held responsible for collapsing world oil prices and the Canadian dollar and interest rates, you know, that's not coming out of the PMO. In, but it's always North, yeah. beyond. Yeah. But it's always beyond Canada's borders. These yes. recessions. Yeah. So that's so, not the question: is who's going to get, who's going to come up with a fix, or who's going to say what the issue is? Yeah, because oftentimes, in a time of economic uncertainty, people stick with the status quo, no matter what the status quo is. If you're feeling uncertain, that's not often a time that people want to make a change. But I think what I'm detecting out in the zeitgeist, as much as anything, is Stephen Harper fatigue. I mean, this is a man who is not long on charm, and. It's interesting. I mean, I don't think people are going to be voting for Stephen Harper in this election. And I I think he's not even trying to make them vote for Stephen Harper. So the question is going to be, in a time of economic uncertainty, at a time when neither Mulcair nor Trudeau is a proven commodity, and nobody really knows if Trudeau has the experience and the competence or if Mulcair's plan uh, will do something very peculiar to the Canadian economy. Are people going to have the confidence to make a switch just because they don't like Stephen Harper? Are they going to be willing to gamble at a time of economic uncertainty? And and that's a, that's a big ask of people. Sure, absolutely. We did such a bang-up job, all of us in the newsroom, of predicting the outcome of the provincial election. <laughs> all right, I, would just, I would just like to say, for the record, who won the pool? Yeah. Keith I won, won the, the pool. pool. Keith and, won the and, pool. Awesome. Only because I picked an NDP minority. No one would pick an NDP majority, so I, I kind of snuck my way into that one. But since we, you know, we all did so well, is anyone willing to predict the outcome of the federal election yet? Nope. nope. Okay. <laughs> Too early. <laughs> all right. All right. So maybe an easier question is, what are some of the interesting writings 
things that people should be watching in Alberta or just even in Edmonton. Edmonton Mill Woods will be interesting. Edmonton Centre will be interesting. The new riding of Edmonton West with Karen Libavici, who I think has already won the nomination, and Heather McKenzie for the NDP won it Tuesday night. There is a, a conservative person already nominated out there, too. Uh, that will be an interesting riding. I think we should all watch Brent Rathgaber in St. Albert. So oh, yes. the independent mm-hmm. can win again. I, I think Sheila is right. It's going to be... It's going to be much more entertaining a federal election for those of us covering it in Edmonton than it has been for years. I mean, we have, you know, people often accuse journalists of bias, but I think the real bias we have is for horse races. And I think sometimes we like to imagine that there are horse races, not so much because we support a particular party, but because otherwise it is so boring (laughs) to cover on election night. So I think our selection bias is to imagine that there is a more competitive race than there actually is often, regardless of what our own political ideologies might be. But I think in this case, we're actually not delusional. I think in this case, (laughs) there are actually going to be some interesting races in Edmonton. Yes, I remember during the provincial election, I live in Edmonton Center, and that was Laurie Blakeman's riding. And I was coming into this building on election night, and I was thinking, what a good race this is going to be. Laurie Blakeman, a really strong MLA from a weak party, and then kind of the strong NDP party with sort of a no-name candidate. And I was thinking, this is going to be the real race to watch tonight. And that did not turn out to be the case. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, David, David Shepard. Shepard. Yeah. Yeah. No, nowhere in yeah. Edmonton, as it turned out, were, were, were real races. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, it, it, is, it does make it interesting because, the, for instance, Center, there, it involves about five ridings that went strongly for the NDP. I mean, most every riding in Edmonton did. But it'll be very interesting to see if that doesn't translate, if they elect a Tory uh, James coming from the chamber, and then those all those provincial NDP right, uh, votes don't translate into anything. That'll be very interesting. Yeah, I think the the going back to the the question of the provincial federal, what's the correlation there? I think a lot of people just don't want that kind of risky new party in, and I think during the provincial election. We saw during the debate that Rachel Notley was probably not a very risky person to put in the premier's chair. And I think maybe that's the one big effect of the provincial election. People aren't scared of the NDP. Uh, I don't think they are sold on them, but I think it took away that fear of this party that we don't know much about. So I think that maybe could be the big thing from there is that people, especially in Edmonton, won't be afraid to vote NDP. Whether or not they do, I think, is a different question. Well, switching gears just a little bit, former Premier Alison Redford was briefly back in the media this week when CBC News interviewed her on a few topics that occurred after she left office, including the floor crossing of Danielle Smith, the, the collapse of the PC party that she used to lead, and Rachel Notley's big NDP victory. Stuart, what did you find most interesting out of that interview? Uh, well, I found two mostly superficial things interesting. Um, there was an interview ran about the same time with Brian Jean by McLean's magazine. And it was funny to detect just a hint of schadenfreude about Daniel Smith from both of them. Right. Uh, they were both asked, what did you think about that floor crossing? And Brian Jean went out of his way to say, I'm not friends with Danielle Smith. I don't know who she is. I don't care about her. I would never be on her radio show. (laughs) (laughs) And it was really like over the top in the question. And and Redford, you could tell, was a bit more diplomatic, but you could tell that she really enjoyed that whole run of events. Can't really blame her. Uh, The other thing that I noticed, too, was another correlation. When Danielle Smith left politics, she had this kind of revisionist idea of Mm -hmm. what had happened, and she had... This to the point where one of her former staffers actually took to the pages of the National Post to call her out on this kind of delusional way she saw the whole thing playing out. And there was something Redford said where she, they were talking about the rise of the NDP and uh, Rachel Notley winning, and they said, were you surprised by this? 
Redford said, I, you know, I talked to a lot of Albertans when I was premier, uh, and I heard what they were saying. I was not surprised at all by the NDP majority and Rachel Notley's <laughs> one. And I was thinking, wow, you could have made a lot of money if you yeah, bet on that. Yeah. You could have come into this yeah. newsroom and won our pool easily. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I was thinking, is this a politician thing, or do we all kind of like view our lives through this lens of we are the hero and everybody wronged us? Uh, I think maybe politicians are more susceptible to it, but uh, it was really interesting. It, I, mean, I think Stuart's right. I mean, the revisionism of, of both Smith and Redford is really... It, it, you don't have to pinch yourself and think. Is is you know is this like that movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow right, where like yeah. there's a, like an alternate stream of history yeah. that I don't know about? But but what I thought was interesting about the interview is when she was asked point blank, you know, if she took responsibility for the PC party law, she's like, no. And I thought, yeah, you know what? Because that's on Jim Prentice. I mean, she did tremendous damage to the brand and tremendous damage to the machine, but. It's also revisionist history for the Tories now to say it's all her fault. Like, I mean, there were two premiers after Alison yeah. Redford. You know, we they cannot tie this whole th- the collapse of the whole party back to her because that's an no. that's an equally self serving narrative, right, which yeah. is equally not grounded in reality. Oh, right. Well, the other major topic of that interview, and I I understand the the point of why she was interviewed was to talk a little bit about the Canadian energy strategy, which the the premiers, including Rachel Notley, signed an agreement towards last week. I think one of the questions there is uh, how much credit does Alison Redford deserve for, I guess, getting the energy strategy to this point? Well, she put it on the table. I mean, she created the form of words. It depends what you're taking credit for, because... And it depends what the strategy's going to end up being about. I mean, for her, it was a lot about BC politics getting a pipeline through, and that's what sparked her to do it. The five points that BC wanted for the Northern Gateway Pipeline, and she broadened it to a national strategy. That's kind of off the table right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's now time to wind down this episode with our regular feature, Good Stuff from the Gallery, where we each share something interesting that we've read or watched or listened to. Uh, so, Paul, I'm going to start with you. What, uh, what have you got for us this week? Uh, this is from a source I have never referenced before in the press gallery, and it's an unusual source. It is a piece from The Onion. Uh, the, <laughs> I the, think the, I know which the, one this the is. The American <laughs> satire site. Sometimes satire is the best way to tell an interesting truth. Um, and I'm going to recommend a piece which purports to be written by Donald Trump. It is, of course, not written by Donald Trump, although to judge from the comments, not everybody got that. Um, and it's called Admit It. You people want to see how far this goes, don't you? And it's a really interesting piece that kind of speaks to the watching the train wreck schadenfreude that we're all, like, you know, we all watch this Donald Trump juggernaut and think, you know, oh my goodness, what what is going to happen next? And so the piece is really interesting because it forces you to confront your own complicity in the Donald Trump circus. So... Yes, it's a joke, but is the joke on us? Yeah. Uh, so that is my recommendation okay. from The Onion. Sheila, what have you got for us this week? Well, for old time's sake, let us I just had a quick look back at the Alberta Views piece in 2014 on the end of Alison Redford. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you want to be reminded of how all that broke down and uh, answer your secret question, is she really trying for a comeback, have a read of Laurie Adkins' piece in Alberta Views. Okay, I remember that one. That was a good one, yeah. yeah it was interesting. Yeah, my piece this week is not really politics. Uh, it's called, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything uh, When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash? And it's written by uh, you 
University of Alberta health law professor, Timothy Caulfield, who I find quite engaging. And this book in particular is quite a uh, effective uh, debunking of some of the uh, the fads and, and health miracle cures and other things that celebrities are, are selling out there. Uh, I thought it was really well put together. Stuart, what about you? What have you got for us? Uh, it's definitely not a politics piece, but my piece is a Guardian story about the Twitter beef between Nicki Minaj and Taylor Swift. <laughs> you may have heard of this, and you may need it explained to you. Uh, this piece will do that. And it also gives you sort of the background of black artists being snubbed at award shows, why they might be particularly raw about that, and why people like Taylor Swift feel the need to poke their nose into it when it happens. It just was a couple of tweets between celebrities, but I think there's a bigger conversation to be had here. Yeah, a good piece. yeah okay, well, we'll get people to check that out. Thanks very much. That's it for episode 97 of the podcast. The previous 96 episodes can be found at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or through the Edmonton Journal's SoundCloud feed. The show is also available on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. And don't forget to connect to all of us through Facebook and Twitter. Thanks to Mr. Whitmire for letting me sit in the host chair this week. He will be back from Chicago next week, undoubtedly full of deep dish pizza, Al Capone souvenirs, and tales from the Windy City. By then, some new political breezes will likely be blowing through Alberta, and our esteemed panelists will be here, as always, to provide their insight in the press gallery.